This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Satoko Naito, and I'm a docent at the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Jurgi Kallio of the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. He is a senior research fellow specializing in Chinese foreign policy and East Asian regional issues, with expertise also in Chinese political culture and traditional philosophy. He has translated several Confucian classics, including the two, I believe, most canonical texts, the Analects and Mencius. Thank you very much, Jurgi, for joining me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. A few months ago, you were on an episode of this podcast to discuss China-Finland relations with Andreas Boye Forsby of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. You spoke about Finland as maintaining a largely um, pragmatic relationship with Xi Jinping's China, including through fruitful economic uh, relations. But now you're back to talk about Confucianism. So my first question to you really is from a place of true awe and admiration. How did you come to develop your current expertise in both contemporary Chinese foreign policy and classic Chinese thought? Well, I guess that is a good question that would come to the mind of many. And first of all, I have to say that I don't consider myself an expert in classical Chinese philosophy. It's it's a huge field and there's a lot to learn every day. And I still feel that I'm in, in the middle of the learning process. And actually my interest towards the Confucian classics, so that I even started translating them, started from my need and desire to learn more, to understand more about Confucianism. Because well, I've been following China for a very long time. Before I entered the Finnish Institute of International Affairs about 10 years ago, I was working for the Finnish Foreign Ministry for about 18 years as a career diplomat. I was working mostly on China. And then when I joined the, the, the FIA, I realized that when I was looking at China, that there was a lot of Confucian phrases being used by the Chinese leaders. For instance, Hu Jintao and his Hui, the um, harmonious society, inserted into the, uh, into the rhetoric. I visited the Shanghai Expo in 2010, and I noticed that there was a film that was shown to all Chinese participants who entered uh, the China Pavilion at the ex- exhibition, which was all about harmonious society mm-hmm. and what it means. And it was all explained through Confucian quotations. Then I thought that, you know, I really need to understand, are, those, are the Chinese leaders quoting correctly? Do they understand what they're talking about? Are they trying to perhaps utilize the words of the sages in a, in a particular way or what? So then I realized that I need to learn more about Confucianism myself. Mm. My understanding certainly at that point was rather shallow. And since I had been doing translating from classical Chinese, Wen Yanwen, before that, I knew that the best way of really getting into a text and really understanding is translating it. Because mm-hmm. then you really have to think of what the different, uh, think about the terminology and, and really try to understand yourself before you can then explain to the, to the readers what, it, what right. it means. So that's, that's how it started. I published my translation of the Analects, the Lun Yu, in 2014. 
And that same year, actually during the time when the book was in print, I was in Beijing participating at a conference of the International Confucian Association. It was a huge conference. Mm-hmm. And at the opening ceremony, uh, which was held actually at the Great Hall of the People in Beijing, uh, Xi Jinping delivered the opening address. So then I realized, that, okay, I'm, I am really onto something. I see. Thanks. That's fascinating. I'd love to hear more about how the CCP is using Confucian rhetoric. But first for the basics. So aside from the Analects and Mentris in readings of early modern Japanese history, so 17th through 19th centuries, with regards to Confucianism, or rather Neo-Confucianism, I should say, I often come across the four books and the five classics. But is that just one way of grouping the text? What exactly are the Confucian classics? Again. There are no easy answers to any any of the questions relating to Confucianism. Right. Yeah. Although many textbooks, they you know they like to say that okay, these are the these particular five, for instance, are the Confucian virtues. These particular four or five or thirteen or whatever are the Confucian classics and and so forth. But there have been different lists and categorizations over different times, and already in the uh, sort of earliest followers of Confucius, they start to mention five books. Mm. Uh, which referred to books that either Confucius himself knew or supposedly knew. I don't know if he actually had any of these, you know, books. They, they they were all at that time. They would have been consisting of huge scrolls of bamboo sticks bound together. They would have been very rare and very expensive. And Confucius was very poor mm-hmm. for most of his life, at least. But but anyway, there's a, he certainly does quote songs, history, and rites. So these are the three of the five classics that Confucius knew himself to an extent. And then there are two other books that that are supposedly have been compiled by Confucius, the Spring and Autumn Annals, which is the history of the state of Lu, which was the home state of Confucius. And then there was a book of music as well, but that has been lost. And during the Han Dynasty, since the Book of Music had been lost, the place of the fifth classic was taken over by Yijin, the Book of Changes, which I don't personally believe that Confucius had any interest towards. But during the Han Han Dynasty, it was very popular. It was fashionable to study the Book of Changes. And so it it was said that Confucius also compiled some commentaries for that. So that then became part of the five five books. The sort of the Confucian canon, the, uh, the, the most important Confucian books, it started to grow over time. In addition to the five books, then later also Mencius and Confucius' own, or compiled by his, by his disciples, the Analects, became important books as well. The canon grew to 13 books by Song Dynasty. And there's a new Confucian, just as you rightly said, Zhu Xi, who, and before him already some other neo-Confucians, felt that among these uh, 13 classics, there are four that are more important than others. And those would have been the Analects and Mencius, but also two chapters of the larger compilation of the rites called uh, Da Xue or Tai Xue, uh, the Great Learning 
and uh, Zhongyong or Zhongyong, uh, which has been translated in many different ways. And it, it's really debatable what the title of that book means. But then that was the, uh, the set of four books that really became the most important for the rest of the Chinese imperial era, around 1100s. Then there are other books, of course, that are outside the canon, but are still very important for the development and understanding of Confucianism, such as the uh, Xunzi. He, unlike Mencius, who has a Latinized name, I mean, Chinese, he's Mengzi. Xunzi uh, was a contemporary of Mencius, just a, lived just a bit later, probably was born around the time when, when Mencius died. And his book is, is an, the second significant work of an early follower of Confucius, but it never got the position as uh, uh, in the Confucian canon. And that's why it was never given a, a Latinized name because when the Jesuits right. were in China, you know, they only knew Mencius. Nobody was talking about uh, Xunzi because that was condemned at that time as, a, as an unorthodox take on Confucius. But in reality, Xunzi was very influential during the Han Dynasty and early Chinese imperial era. Because Xunzi, although he, is, you know, he was very much a follower of Confucius, he was also a realist. And his political thought was such that the later prime minister of the first emperor of Qin, uh, Li Si, was, was one of his students. Uh, also Han Fei, who was uh, one of the most famous philosophers of the so-called legalist school. He was also Xunzi's student. So um, his ideas were really, really very important because he was uh, promoting the kind of sort of more down-to-earth practical philosophy than Mencius, for instance. But he was then later by Zhu Xi, the neo-Confucian Zhu Xi, for, uh, among others, he was condemned as an unorthodox thinker, and that's why his writings were not then not never never sort of accepted as part of the canon. And it's okay. also interesting when we're talking about the Confucian canon. Sorry, I can, I, no, as you can see, I can go on for, for yes, how long <laughs> ever about these things. There was a um, compilation of the you know the Confucian classics that was put together during the Tang Dynasty, and interestingly enough. It contains Tao Te Ching and Zhuangzi mm. in that selection. Mm -hmm. So there was no clear borderline early on between the different schools of thought. Um, and it was only later on that it really became sort of more important to differentiate Confucianism from the other schools of thought, for instance, Taoism, and then right. later on with religions like Buddhism. So as you said, nothing to do with Confucianism is very simple. And um, I, I think even the term Confucianism could be problematic for some because already Mencius, who is a couple of generations after Confucius, um, we see changes or developments, at least an emphasis in his writings. But if you could distill the Analects, what, are the, what do you make to be the most significant tenets of Confucius's Confucianism, if we can call it that? It is very, very right what you said that the, the Confucianism as a term is very problematic. It's, of course, it's a, it's a term used outside of China. In China itself, there's another term, Ru, Rujia, which refers to Confucianism, but it was a term that pre-existed, predates Confucianism. Mm -hmm. It existed before Confucius. Confucius was a Ru, 
himself. And uh, but that's another. We can perhaps you know save that discussion to another <laughs> another time. Mm -hmm. But the main tenets of Confucius and his teachings, I think, he was very much concerned of making an impact uh, in the society of his time, and he was gathering disciples, students, whom he hoped would then become functionaries, civil servants, or advisors to, to the rulers and help guide, direct the development of the society towards the kind of ideals that Confucius himself felt that uh, were necessary. Now, these ideals, he himself always said that he did not create, he only transmitted. So he was using these examples from uh, ancient history. But of course, he's being, you know, He's being modest on one hand, and, and he's being very shrewd on the other hand, because, of course, he was interpreting history in the way that he wanted to interpret history. Right. Right. So he was very much creating. He was creating the kind of idealized past that never probably existed. And one example of how he did this is, I think, one of his main innovations, and that has to do with the, with the term junzi which we usually would translate as noble man or gentleman. We can come back to why we are always talking about men later, but that was Confucius's <laughs> society. But anyway, it's a term that in its original meaning that still comes forth in many uh, texts contemporary to Confucius is prince, son of uh, a prince. ruler. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he made that term suddenly referred to everybody so that you know everybody should aim to become prince in a mental way so you know you can't of course be born a prince but you can become as noble as a prince was supposed to be and so he made this this very concrete term into an uh, abstract ideal and that was I would say it was very revolutionary because suddenly then he was, you know, giving this Junza, becoming a prince, this ideal to, to everybody who was not of noble birth. And that has to do with, uh, that brings us to finally, perhaps to your question, which is what is the main tenet of Confucius's teaching? And that is that he was really encouraging his followers to, through learning and through following teachers, to become enlightened persons such persons who would be able to then judge what is right and what is wrong by themselves so that they would not need to be told by someone else, you know, what, how one should live a good life. And then to use that knowledge to become a gentleman, to become a nobleman who would then, through his own example, guide the society towards the direction where more and more people would, would also follow those same ideals. So I think that is the main tenet of Confucius. It was really all about personal enlightenment. I see. Is that why Confucianism or Confucius's thoughts is often described as being humanist? That is probably the one reason. But again, when I was translating Mönch's, I realized how much later Confucianism is really influenced by Mönch's. He has really been much more influential. And many of the things that we today would sort of understand as Confucian, they really come from Mönchus for the, for the first time. And this humanism, this ideal, 
is much more strong in Mencius because he was the one who was then saying that the rulers should take the well-being of the population, of the people in account. He was the one who was saying that that if the ruler is unjust, then the you know the people have the right to overturn such a ruler. Such ruler does not deserve the the trust of the people. So there are many things actually that that come much stronger forth in Mencius. There's also such a thing as, as different societal roles of people. Confucius was he was very strong on saying that we should follow propriety or the old ways, the rites and rituals. But it was again Mencius who made that into a much more sort of a stricter, who, who, who then sort of explained what that really means in terms of how people live. And he was the one who was then saying that that everybody should you know, really behave in their own, own role. A husband should be a husband, wife should be wife, father should be father, son should be son, ruler should be ruler, minister should be minister, and, and, and so forth. It is mentioned by Confucius, but it was really Mencius who really brought this idea much strongly, much more strongly to the, um, to the, to the forefront of Confucianism. Okay, so this leads us to a question I've had about Confucianism. And that's the kind of tension between what you mentioned earlier, that anyone can become a gentleman or a nobleman. You can work your way up. You don't need to be born into a certain class. The basis of the civil service exam system. So on the one hand, you have this kind of meritocracy. And on the other, you have emphasis on what what you just mentioned, on people having to adhere to rules and certain status within society. So um, am I simplifying it by thinking that these are conflicting notions, merit-based versus inherently hierarchical systems? Or is it just about Confucius versus Mencius? There is, you're absolutely right in thinking that there is an internal conflict there. And it's a conflict that, that was present from the very early times. Now, Confucius was very strongly in favor of choosing the able people into office to the extent that there have been some very early Confucian texts that have been unearthed from a grave uh, in the 1990s, the so-called Guodian Corpus, which is very interesting because it reveals a discussion that was ongoing. And this this probably predate Mencius even. And there's there's a discussion going on which seemed to suggest that the right way of giving the throne, I mean, the, the rulership of a country would be to give that to the able person, to the most able person, not to your male descendant. But this of course changed when China became an empire, the Han Dynasty took power and all that. And then, then this uh, sort of became natural that it always should be the, the oldest male heir that should get the throne. But that probably, you know, if Confucius had been alive at that time, he might have felt, you know, objected to that thought. Mencius, he was already living at the time when the society was changing, and he was, he he was already seeing that, you know, that's the way that the, that the, that the things are, and so he was sort of creating a set of thought where the son of heaven, of the ruler, his position is hereditary. But it's not really hereditary as such. It's because heaven gives that person the right to rule. 
so he was sort of then giving the um, putting the responsibility for this and claiming the heaven for creating this system. At the same time, when it came to civil servants and people below the ruler, then it should be their ability that would be the defining factor on who is chosen into office and who is not. But at the same time, now Confucius was very strongly saying that everybody has to become a person who is, you know, able to define right and wrong himself. Again, he was not talking about women, so we can't really say herself in this in this context. <laughs> but Mönchis felt that, yes, that's true, but at the same time, societal order needs people to behave in certain roles in certain times. And that means that even though a minister knows what is right and wrong and, and he has the responsibility to advise the ruler to do what is right, nevertheless, he has to obey and be loyal to the ruler. Mm. A son uh, must tell his father that his father is about to commit a mistake, but still the son must obey the father in the final sort of the that is that has to be the end end result. So mm. there was this uh, there was this conflict from the very early times on, and then when we come to the later imperial Confucianism, when the Ming Dynasty and Qing Dynasty emperors tried to make Confucianism fit or sort of make it digestible for the common people, so they created this set of very strict rules and into which Confucianism was supposed to be sort of potted. And those all then put very strong emphasis in these societal roles and for people to be knowing their place. And this what has been called vulgar Confucianism by scholars is something that really made then Confucianism into this kind of a straight jacket. I see. That when we jump into the... Uh, the, the revolutions in China in the early 1900s, people, the revolutionaries, the republicans, they were accusing Confucianism as being the, uh, you know, the, the most important reason of why China is so backward and unable to develop and why the society is so ossified in mm. following old ways. That is really, and, and they were saying that's because of Confucianism, but in reality, that was you know, the, the blame goes to this vulgar Confucianism, the attempts of the Ming and Qing emperors to make Confucianism into something that it originally, I would say, was not. I see. I definitely hope to return to discuss the 20th century and current state of China and Confucianism. But now, because you've already mentioned this a couple of times about the, the women problem, let's see, the lack of mention of noble women or gentlewomen, as you've said earlier, and really one common criticism of Confucianism is its close association with patriarchal oppression, let's say. Can you address this issue? What do you make of the absence of women in these early texts? There's no way of denying that Confucius himself and his early followers, and for a very long time, majority of Confucians, they, they would have been very male-centric and proponents of the patriarchal society. Now, that if one wants to be sort of lenient towards them, then one has, has to understand that they were just, Confucius was interested in the betterment of his society. He wanted to have people in office who would follow his ideals, the ideals that he set, and then make the, uh, 
make the world a better place. But in his time, it was a male-centered society. So he was talking to other men, particularly men of his own social stratum, the so-called shi, the knights, that then later became called scholar officials. So that was his main audience. And it is sort of natural then that he would not talk about women or to women because women had no place to or no role to play in the society at that time. But then, and there have been already during the Han Dynasty, there was a female historian who actually followed in the footsteps of his brother and took over the work as a historian who wrote one very influential book about how women should behave. And she, on the one hand, she uh, sort of repeated the same kind of thoughts that were prevalent during her time, that women should be obedient and sort of subject to the, uh, to, to the master, which would be, you know, their father or their husband or elder brother, but always the male in the family. But at the same time, she was also questioning why would only male children be allowed education? And she actually quotes the rights and saying that there it says that children of the age of seven or so should start to learn to read and write. It does not say men. So why should women be left outside of this? So, you know, she was in this regard, she was a very sort of revolutionary And there have been other Confucian thinkers, male thinkers, who have also been discussing about the role of women and and reminding people that really, you know, why should women be left out? And and particularly if you're looking at Confucianism in present day, I myself would have no doubt that if Confucius were to write today, he would, of course, see the world as it is today and then, you know, look at things very differently. Right. Of course, as you say, uh, always putting things in historical context and the societal context is important. The historian that you mentioned, I'm going to say her name very badly. Is it Ban Zhao? Uh, yes, exactly. Ban Zhao, yes. Okay. So she's very influential also in, in Japan, in early modern Japan. She's often included in collections of stories of exemplary women. And, and Mencius and Confucius also both appear, but as sons of other exemplary women within these collections of stories about women. So these mothers were both young widows, spent all of their energy educating their sons who became these wonderful scholars. So, so at least the mothers of Confucius and Mencius in later retellings of their lives are praised and, and idolized quite widely. So I would finally like to return to the issue of the contemporary Chinese Communist Party and this kind of Confucian revival. So previously under Mao, any kind of discussion of Confucius was condemned, but now uh, Confucianism is really officially embraced, as you mentioned. But in, in my understanding, Confucianism really does not seem to adhere to Marxist-Leninist thinking. How do you see the government, how is the government incorporating Confucianism into their party ideology? It's a fascinating thing to watch what is happening in China in, in this regard. Now, this whole Confucian revival 
there's been a lot of studies about it and uh, and really it's a it's a very multifaceted phenomenon but i guess the uh, the main sort of the uh, driving force behind the communist party for promoting traditional values and in particular confucianism again has to do with the fact that uh, there is a realization in china that there's a spiritual ideological vacuum communism is no longer workable as an ideology because the society is no longer communist so they are trying to promote these traditional values as as a basis from uh, on basis of which it would be possible to build a new national ideology for china i think it's it's something that is is very much an ongoing process but while they are and one factor behind this is that the communist party is adamant in saying that there are there are no such things as universal values you know such as human rights china has should have the right to create its own set of values on on basis of the rich chinese cultural tradition so it's also sort of very patriotic promoting these traditional chinese schools of thought and and try to create something chinese instead of these universal values now whilst the Con- communist party is doing that of course they have to be very selective there are things in confucian thought that are not applicable to communism or socialism at all now for instance when i was when i had done translating mencius i was i i was asked by finnish radio a couple of times that you know what would mencius say about today's china and my answer was that he would be pleased with some things such as you know that it seems that the people you know their livelihood has improved the country is stable it's united unity was very important for for mencius but he would not be happy about the communist party dictating people of how to think because in confucianism it is very important that the people should learn to understand by themselves through personal enlightenment what is right and wrong and not to be dictated by the party to to say what is morally right or wrong and uh, since the the party sort of started its revival at the same time there's been a, a lot of happening at the grassroots level as well there's first of all a very very lively discussion going on in china about what is confucianism all about what are its main tenets mm. and it's not an easy question to answer for for anybody but it's it's really fascinating to see that that discussion is ongoing in china because many people they do doubt that the communist party you know should have the monopoly in in deciding what confucianism how it should be interpreted and then there are these all kinds of other grassroots phenomena such as these confucian sunday schools as i would call them mm-hmm. so parents send their children to study learn by heart confucian classics over the weekends or or summer holidays because they believe that you know this old ways there is something good about them that makes children perhaps behave better or i don't know but it's it's also very very interesting so there are very many different kinds of things happening at the same time Right. I wish we could keep going but unfortunately we're limited in time. Confucianism is as we've just as we've discussed not simple, it's endlessly fascinating and continues today to exert influence obviously in China as well as East Asia and beyond. Thank you so much for your insights today, Yurki. Well, it has been pleasure, uh, my pleasure again. So thank you. Thank you again that was Yurki Kalio and to our listeners thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia
You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.